Welcome to Emmanuel. We are going through a series of messages this spring term uh, called We Are Emmanuel, um, in which we basically, over several weeks, seek to answer the question, uh, what, what is Emmanuel? What is this church? What are you about? Um, last week, we started to talk about the, the first of four huge kind of key parts of our philosophy of our, our value system, of what, what's in our heart. And uh, that first part was that Jesus leads the church. And, and that's a huge claim. Sounds a little bit odd, perhaps, to us. Um, you know, where, where is he then? What's, what, how, is he the, what, has he got an office somewhere? What, how does he lead the church? And we began last week to answer the question, you know, how? How does he? We started by talking about how he leads us through his word, the Bible. The Bible is final in Emmanuel. It's, it's, it's God's authoritative word to us. And so it, it kind of carries weight as the, the, the test book, if you like, the thing that we check things against. That It has to get past the Bible. It, it needs to be okay with the Bible for it to be okay in the church. But we, we said a bit more than that. It's not just a case of, you know, you, you, you've got to keep the rules of being within the bounds of the Bible or bang, we hit you. You, you didn't get it right. You know, you, you broke the rule. No, 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 you can't say it. The Bible says, no, the Bible says, no, no, the Bible says. It's, it's not just about authority in that perhaps rather cold sense, but it's, it's something much more tender and sweet and wonderful than that in as much as God is present to us in the reading and the proclamation and the teaching of the Bible, Jesus is actually amongst us and with us. And so this isn't only just cold rules, it's the presence of God as he's revealed through Scripture. He actually is manifest to us through the Bible. We get to meet him in the Bible. The Bible is therefore like no other book ever written and ever to be written. When you ever do this, you are doing something dangerous because God can break out. This is a, a living book. And we talked about that and the impact of that on church life a little bit last week. I want to talk today a bit further about how Jesus leads the church, because there's way more to be said about how this happens. So that's our plan. And to do that, we're going to uh, uh, read from 1 Corinthians. So if you've got your Bible, it's in the New Testament. The words are come on the screen as well. And I'm going to read from chapter 4. Uh, these are the words of the Apostle Paul writing uh, one of the letters that we have from his hand that he wrote to a church in the city of Corinth. So this is what Paul says. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. So let me start us off by asking you to imagine the difference between driving a train and driving a car. Uh, one of the obvious differences is the, the absence of a steering wheel in a train. 
you, you only need to be going forward because the track is what keeps you going in the right direction. You don't have to make a lot of steering decisions if you're a train driver. If you're driving a car, you are constantly making steering decisions. You're constantly watching that you're not too much that side, too much that side. It's a tension all the way through. And it may feel perfectly easy and relaxing, but nevertheless, you have to have your wits about you that, that you don't steer down the wrong way. You steer carefully when you're driving all that machinery at all that speed. And that's a, an important analogy if we're to understand what leading a church is like. Leading a church is more like driving a car than a train. Because a, a, a train driver doesn't need to make the same decisions that a driver of a car does. A driver of a car has to keep deciding, are we too far that way? Are we too far that way? Where are we going anyway? What's the direction that we're meant to be going? And you're, you're using your steering wheel with discretion and, and with, with care and hopefully with some wisdom and, and, and some direction, some purpose. You know where you're expected to end up. And that's, that's, that's what it's a little bit like leading in church. And the, the fact that we have to make decisions often in church life is, it shows that it's not an automatic process. It's not that these things are done for us. You might say, well, we, we've, got, we've kind of got sat-nav, haven't we? That's what this is, right? You know, we've, got, we've, got some, we've got some information about where we're meant to be going. We've got some guidance, right? God's given us his word. Yeah, I guess that would be quite a good analogy. We've got our sat-nav, that's good. But you notice that sat-navs aren't very good at conversation. You can't talk to the sat-nav and have it, or you can, <laughs> many, many of us do, uh, but, but you, don't, you don't develop a deep relationship with the sat-nav particularly, you shouldn't. <laughs> so, so, so there's a big, big difference there. And what's more, even with the sat-nav, you've still got some decisions to make, haven't you? You've got to decide, have I understood the sat-nav? I've, I've often misinterpreted my sat-nav. I thought it was saying something, and it wasn't. And I looked more carefully. I thought, oh, flip, I, look, I got it all wrong. I looked at it, and it was wrong. My, or my, I was wrong in my interpretation of it. Get it? And not only that, but there are things a sat-nav won't tell you. There are, there are some sort of specifics that it won't give you any information on. It's, there's a sense in which, yeah, you can work that out yourself. You know, yeah, don't, sat-nav doesn't need to tell you not to drive on the pavement. There's sort of some obvious things. There's some things that you kind of, down to some sense and sensibilities that we, we grow in ourselves as we learn. And I think it's, again, a very helpful analogy because really leading our lives as Christians and leading churches, leading whole communities, leading your family, perhaps, is a little bit like that. There are things that the Bible won't specifically say much about, what color the, the carpet should be, what kind of building we should have, what kind of a budget we should set this year, what we should spend it on where we should start a new site if we start one. The Bible doesn't have much to say about those specific things. And so we are left to decision-making, and therefore we need to think, okay, well, how do we do this? We said last week the Bible is final. Well, it is. That, that means that, that we've yeah, we got to be diligent about our Bible, but we've also got to think through how else do we follow the leadership of Jesus? If Jesus really leads the church... What does that look like when, when there are gaps in the information, or, or at least perceived gaps? And if there are issues of interpretation, how are we going to interpret this, this, this information or this direction or this command? 
and so on. And this is where the, the things I want to talk about today come into the kind of Emmanuel philosophy. I want to talk today about prayer, and then later on we'll touch on leadership and following in the church. So first of all, let's talk about prayer. Prayer is our first calling. Prayer is our first calling. Okay, so Jesus leads the church through the Bible, but he also leads it through calling us to prayer, which he does for sure. He calls us to prayer by his words, but also by his extraordinary example. And prayer is right at the heart of what it means to be human. Okay, I want you to let, let that sink through. Prayer is right at the heart of what it means to be you. I say that partly to shock you, a surprise, because many, most of you, if you're honest, I certainly would say this, would feel a lot of the time as if it, it isn't very human. It doesn't feel natural to us. Prayer feels difficult. It feels, it feels like a, often we're doing something that goes, takes us into our weaknesses, takes us out of our, our sort of comfort zone, and we feel like, I'm not good at this. And we struggle with ourselves and we give up. We usually give up. We might set ourselves prayer goals. We might set New Year's resolutions. And we're very prone to give up on them because prayer is difficult. It feels unnatural. But I'm here to tell you it's not unnatural. It's actually utterly natural to us. There's a reason it feels unnatural. And it's not a good reason. It's because of the fall. It's because of what happened. It's not because of how we were made. It's because how we were unmade. How we were distorted and ruined by our rebellion against God, which is described at the very start of the Bible. It explains what's happened to us. It explains what happened generations and generations and generations right at the very core of our family tree. Something happened that we all suffer from. It happened to the root of the tree, so it happens to the fruit of the tree. We like the fruit of the tree, we like the branches of the tree, and we struggle because our first father, instead of living his life totally dependent on God, he said, no, I will be dependent on no one but myself. I will be self-sufficient. I will live for me, and I will live from the resources of me. I will be independent. I will be free from you. But of course, man saying to God, I will be free from you, is, as we often say from this platform, a bit like a branch saying to a tree, I will be free from you. What happens to the branch? Dies. Because a branch is part of the tree, or it's nothing. As soon as the branch says, no, I'm going off, I'm, I'm, I'm branching out, ha ha, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm declaring independence, it's over. It's game over for the branch, because the branch is the tree or it's nothing. We are dependent on God or we're nothing. But the problem is, because part of our nothingness, part of our shriveled upness and our decay and distortion that's come in since the fall, is, is a kind of comfort with nothingness. We kind of prefer it. Jesus said, the world prefers the darkness to the light. We like it more. We're born that way. We're born liking desertion from God, uh, separation from God, distrust of God. A little bit more. It feels a little bit better. It's like when you try and get a kid to wear nice, nice clothes. 
And he keeps going back to his scruffy ones. You probably feel like that about me, some of you. So just, yeah, why do you always, he's always comfortable in the scruffy stuff. And that's, that's, that's the human condition. We're more comfortable in our distrust of God. You think, oh, come on. But that's, that's the way we, we're, we're sadly wired. Not because God made us that way at all. God made us to feel totally at home with him, totally dependent on him, talking to him all the time. All the time. And no one has lived that way naturally. No one does. All the sons and daughters of Adam find that very uncomfortable. Until someone came along who was the opposite, who was the dead opposite. One of the things the disciples noticed about Jesus was his prayer life. Jesus was always praying. <laughs> you read that in the stories of him, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It often says Jesus would often go away to a quiet place alone and pray. He was praying when they met up with him. He was praying at this point, praying at that point. He would, he would leave them sometimes to go off and pray. He would, he would be in a quiet place and pray. When he was with them, he'd pray with them. When he was with strangers, he'd pray with them. He talked about who he was praying to all the time. He lived his life in absolutely content, almost complacent communion with his father. Almost too content. You'd think, well, there's something wrong with you. You're strange. You talk as though you're at home with God. You talk as though he's your real father and, and a good father at that. There's no awkward daddy issues. You really feel at home with him. What's going on there? And people found it peculiar. Even his disciples found it unusual. And they said to him, teach us how to pray. That was why they did it. They, they didn't say teach us how to pray because it's, oh, it's got to, where has it got to in the textbook? It's got to prayer. All right, teach us how to pray. Because you know, last week it was teach us how to bake potatoes. Or it was a week before it was teach us how to, to lead a meeting. No, teach us how to pray was because they noticed that's what you do. That's the secret. That's, that's, the, that's the thing that makes you different than everyone else that's ever lived. You know how to pray. Teach us, teach us how to pray. Sure enough, he did. Now, he taught them in, the, in a way that we often just read past in our Bible. He gave them a, the potent weapon of the Lord's Prayer. And, and, and if you do pray that prayer, we haven't got time to go into it, every day of your life, it will change your life. If you pray it carefully, slowly, 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 thinking about each line. But G Jesus taught his disciples how to pray because teaching, as D.L. Moody once said, I would rather teach one man to pray than teach ten men to preach. I think Spurgeon said something like that as well. And he's right. Jesus felt the same. I want to teach you guys to get with God. Because this, this is actually how you become truly human. This is how you learn to live truly dependent on God. He said to them, you've got to learn to remain in me, abide in me. I'm the tree, you're the branches. You've come back in through me. You come right back in. You were lopped off, but now you're, you've been cleaned. You've been put back in, forged into the tree. Now he says, now, now, guys, look at me, look at me. Watch my lips. Remain in me. <laughs> abide in me. Without me, you can do nothing. Just get that through your heads, he's saying to them. He just keeps training them. Guys, remember where it all comes from. You've got to learn to depend on me. So prayer is our first calling as Christians. And if that's true about the individual believer, which it certainly is, the Bible teaches really that it's true about the church almost more than it's true about the individual believer. Don't forget that when we read our Bibles, our English versions, we have the word you, you, 
And that's a singular word in the way we, we hear it in our individualistic culture. They wouldn't have heard it like that. They would have heard it as yous, you guys. It's always plural in those, in those, in those contexts. Talking to the, the body. You guys remain in me. You people, you church. Be a church that prays. Be a church that's before me all the time. So when we get into the story of the church, we notice that that's what happened. We notice that they prayed. You read the story of the book of Acts. After Jesus had been crucified, buried, raised, ascended to the right hand of the Father, he sent out his disciples to be the church and to really carry on the way he taught them. What do they do? They pray. You read the book of Acts, there's hardly a chapter without a prayer meeting. You read the book of Acts, you read, you'll notice that for, it's, the book of Acts takes a long time. It's several years of history. But most of the turning points in the story seem to pivot around prayer or moments of prayer. While they were praying, this happened. While they were worshipping and fasting, this happened. This happened while they prayed. This bad thing happened, then they got together and prayed, and this happened. They were threatened. They got together, they prayed, this happened. They couldn't get into this place, so they waited on God, and God spoke to them, meaning they prayed. You see, the, 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 the total flavor of the book of Acts, like water to a fish tank, it's like you don't always notice it unless you're, you're really looking carefully. The whole feel of it is prayer. You know, like they say, like a, fi a fish doesn't know what water is because it doesn't know anything else. The book of Acts doesn't know anything else other than the atmosphere, just constantly depending on God. And the church, since the book of Acts, has thrived on prayer. That's how it thrives. You look through the history of the church, you'll see that happens again and again. You, you see people like Martin Luther in the 16th century who changed the world because of what he rediscovered in this book and preached with courage, even though he was threatened with death and had to live in exile and lived under threat of arrest and torture and death for many years of his life, but still boldly held out until gradually the world changed and the church began to recover its message of freedom through the cross. He lived a life of prayer. Martin Luther, of all people, would, you'd think he'd be a bit busy for prayer. I mean, he was a busy man. He used to write, at one point of his life, he was writing about a book a day. Writing about a book a day. I mean, they were short books, but he wrote constantly. Busy, preaching, writing, meeting people, talking, teaching. Just utterly world-changing, busy, busy, busy man. But he used to say things like this. Listen, this, I quote Martin Luther. I have so much to do today, I will have to pray three hours instead of two. Well, that's curious, isn't it? What's, he, what's going on there? I have a feeling we're touching the secret again. We're, we're talking about someone who gets Jesus. He's, he's a bit more like Jesus. I, I, I depend on the Father. I depend on him. I'm, I'm a branch in the vine. I don't get to say, I'm too busy to pray. That's like a car saying, I'm too busy to pull over for fuel. I've got to get there. Of course, that's why you've got to pull over. And, and, and Luther saw that and, and others since then. People like John Wesley, who in the 18th century changed this nation, probably more than any other movement leader has changed this nation, at least for the last few hundred years. He used to get up every morning at four to seek God, several hours on his knees. Extraordinary people. But people who led, in, led movements, inspired cultures of prayer, and the church tends to be at her very best in that kind of an atmosphere. So we've got that, I hope, a taste of that in this church to some extent. We're not Wesley, we're not Luther. 
But our story has been shaped by prayer. The big battles that we fought, the big challenges, just the things like building space. The first building that we owned as a church a really long time ago, which the Hove site uses and which I use for my office, was, was along with a few other people, it's not just my office, <laughs> There, there, there was a, a meeting where three of the elders, the, the first three elders of this church, one of them happened to be my dad, were praying that we'd get permission to have the building. And praying, and there was lots of reasons it couldn't happen. It was a real miracle. Praying and praying. And they were praying for many, I don't know how long it was, but not just a few, throwing up a few words. They were praying earnestly for a long time. And eventually one of the brothers there turned around to them and said, guys, I just believe that we've got it. I think we can stop praying now. I think we've got the building. And I don't know when it was, a day or two later, they got the phone call saying, you have permission to have the building. I give you that as one of our lovely examples, but I, there are many. And since then, we've, we've had the joy as a bunch of elders of living on prayer. We do it deliberately. We do it because we know we need to. We as elders meet every week for an hour and a half just to pray, just as elders every week, besides the staff prayer times which are also Tuesday mornings, hour and a half or hour to hour and a half. Other prayer times scattered through the week. Every site has prayer meetings. When we gather to pray for our weeks of prayer, or two weeks, this last two weeks that have happened, we, we, we do it because we're religious people and Christians ought to pray. No, we do it for the same reason that babies breathe. We must. We must. That's what we are. That's what a Christian is. That's what a church is. And we lead by prayer. We say, God, lead us as we pray. And we say, God, speak to us. And he does through the scriptures and often through gifts of prophecy that fit with the scriptures. People who speak, people who say things. Even just a few weeks ago, we were, two weeks ago, we were praying on a Thursday morning and I was reminded of a written down prophecy that a sister in the church sent me that was describing months ago something that we're dealing with as elders right now. Right now. She, had, she knew nothing about it. And she was describing it. And it helped me to know how to pray. Helped me to know how should we pray about this and how should we deal with this situation. It's very easy to deal with it when you're, Jesus is leading the church. Do you get my point? Jesus leads the church is not a slogan, friends. We mean it. That's the kind of church we want. That's the kind of church you're in. If you're in this one, congratulations. We want you to be part of a community where there's, there's a pillar of fire, by, by night and a pillar of cloud by day, there's a sense the Lord is in the camp. The Lord is leading us. What a joy. What a privilege to be the people of God. What a joy. This is why we take prayer so seriously. And it leads me on to my second of the two. I'll talk to you briefly before we finish about leaders. Leaders. And I'll use it but to talk about this slogan that we've, that we've talked about. Leaders who follow can be followed. Leaders who follow can be followed. Okay. Now, to get us into this for a moment, let's go back again to the beginning. You go back to the, the Old Testament, the very early pages. You get uh, Adam and a very interesting verse about his family, Adam's family. When Adam had lived 130 years, I know that sounds weird, another time, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Adam names a son after names himself. Has a son. He is after his likeness, his image. What's that language like? It reminds us of when Adam was created, made after God's image. What's it saying? It's saying Adam has changed everything. The human race is now 
defaced, distorted, cut off from its destiny, cut off from how it's supposed to live. And he is now fathering different kinds of people in his image, not God's image. Now, it doesn't mean that Seth wasn't born in God's image. Every baby is somehow wonderfully, by God's grace, still an image bearer of God. That's why we should care about babies and we should care about all human beings because they're still in the image of God. But it's a very tarnished image. And really, the image of Adam, the image of Adam is what seems to prevail in the way we live. We've been fathered, trained, grown up in a world without God. And again, it means that there's an atmosphere of the blind leading the blind on planet Earth. We follow because we're human. Again, we can't help following. We will tend to follow. We tend to, it's, it's like not being born is not following. It's, it's called being father. You might say, oh, I don't have a father. Well, I'm afraid you did. If there was sperm, there was a father. There's, there's some kind of fathering. I, I, I don't mean to be crude. I just want to make the point. We've all been uh, brought into the world, and we are all dependents in that sense. We all will follow a certain way. We'll be shaped. We, 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 our life is, is something we can't, we can't pretend that we are the author of our fate, the captain of our soul. There's nice poems about that, but in reality, we are always following some trend, following some way before us. We're f- perhaps following literally a father or a fathering figure, some kind of cultural mentor that shapes the way we think and the way we live. And yet it's without the kind of spiritual authority we were supposed to have in the first place. Adam abdicated his authority. Remember like when King Edward gave up the crown for, for, for uh, Mrs. Simpson? And in a sense, it was like that. We gave up the crown. When Jesus comes into the world, one of the interesting things he does, when he chooses his disciples, do you know what he gives them? He gives them authority. He, he, gives, them, he gives them a crown in a sense. You go back to the New Testament, you get to Mark chapter 3, He says, he appointed 12, whom he named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. The world has been ravaged by evil. Man has given up his place of authority. Jesus says to to, to his disciples, I'm giving it back. I want you to learn that you are to follow me, and by virtue of following me, you can be followed. Others can follow you. Even the way that Jesus sent out his disciples. Even in the way he trained them. You notice in the stories, it's, it's such an inspiration to watch the way he trains them. He, he wasn't just looking out for mates. He trained those 12 guys. Think of one just example straight off. 5,000 need to be fed. Remember the story? Empty stomachs. 10,000, or probably more than that, sort of hungry eyes staring at the disciples saying, we're hungry, we could potentially riot. This could go bad for you. This is not the 21st century. There is no petrol station with a food place open nearby. We have flint on the floor. We will hurt you. And the disciples are all kind of, Jesus, they need feeding, they need feeding. Jesus, remember Jesus' words to them? You feed them. You feed them. What's that mean? What's going on? Jesus is training them to take responsibility, saying, you've got spiritual authority. I'm sharing it with you. I want you to learn, to lead, to feed, to care for people. Does that scare you? 
Yeah, okay, it scares you a little bit. It's not wrong. It's all right if it scares you. But I want you to grow up. I want you to step up and take authority, take responsibility, start serving people, caring for people. I don't know where to get bread from. Okay, well, you start praying. <laughs> start, start talking to the Father. Start serving. Start leading. Start doing something you've never done before. See what happens. See if God starts to use you. Sure enough, he does. It happens all over the pages of the New Testament. Then at the very end, when he leaves them, Matthew chapter 28, he says to them, now you go into all the world and you make followers. Okay, so you, these are the 12 disciples, the 12 followers. Jesus sends them into the world. Now you guys, you, you make your followers. Go all the world, make followers of all nations. Go everywhere. I want followers like you everywhere. I'm, I'm going to the Father. I'll still be involved. I'm leading you, don't forget. But I'll lead you from the Father's right hand. You make disciples. So the idea, friends, is that the church thrives by training one another, by leading, discipling, raising up other followers. That is a, an active event. That's not automatic. It's something that people have to get busy doing. Right, we have been told, we've been given our orders, go and make disciples. So when you read the page of the New Testament, you get verses like the one I read out to you, just 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's what Paul, one of the disciples, is saying. You guys, you guys, you need to follow someone, right? You're going to follow everyone. You're going to have hundreds of followers on Twitter, and you're going to follow other people. Who are you following? I follow about three or 400 on Twitter. You're going to follow people. You're going to follow celebrities. You're going to follow your, your friends at school. You're going to follow people. You're going to follow your parents, follow your teachers, follow your lecturers, follow your, follow your, your friend at, at, in the office. You'll follow people all the time. Now, now, I want you particularly to follow me. That's what, who's saying that? Jesus. Paul is saying it. Paul. What business has Paul got saying that? He's not God. It's not the only place he says it. Can we just show on the screen a few other places? There's a few. This is just some examples. It's just a few, all right? So 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Brothers, three, uh, Philippians 3, brothers, join in imitating me. Philippians 4, verse 9, what you have heard and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is funny, isn't it? Then 2 Thessalonians 3, 7, 9, bottom of it, it was not because we do not have that right, but we give you in ourselves an example to imitate and then two, uh, Timothy 3, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my, my persecutions and my sufferings that happened to me. You have followed my teaching. I want you to get this. It's, it, these aren't the only verses. I could show you one or two others as well. I want you to see this is, again, the atmosphere of the New Testament. It, it isn't an atmosphere of, well, I follow Jesus. And it's so lovely that we have these pastors as well who help us out. And we have these friends, these, these mature people in the church who are, who are nice and encouraging. But I follow Jesus. Now, the, the atmosphere of the New Testament is I follow Jesus by following the people he gives me. I can't get away from that. I know that is not 21st century. I know. I get it. I get that that, that goes against the grain a little bit. Because we think of spirituality as me and my private time, me and myself. It's, it's all about my, my personal spiritual vibe. And I don't get spiritual by being around people. I get spiritual by being away from people. I tell you, that is not the culture of the Bible. 
The teaching of the Bible is quite different. You follow Jesus by being around his people and by watching and learning those who've been with him a little longer sometimes, people who've had a few more battles, a few more scars, things to, to teach you, things they can share with you. They have stuff to give you. And so what do you do? You follow them. You watch their lives and you follow them. And that will go against your, your preference. It will feel awkward. It will feel like putting on a pair of shoes that don't quite fit at first because it goes against our sensibilities to follow other people. Of course it does with sons of Adam anyway. But it's biblical. And frankly, it's the only way it can really happen. If all we do is say, well, I follow the Bible. I sit in a tree with my Bible. And all I do is I have, I have a relationship with God and I follow him. I follow him. I'm interested in him alone. Don't forget all you church people and pastors and elders and, and, and Christian friends who are a bit more Christian than me or small group leaders. I just need to have my personal relationship, my personal communion with God. It won't be real communion with God, I have to say. It will be quite a strange version of it. I, I know this is annoying. Some of, you, some of you look at me like I'm really annoying you at the moment. But I've I, I got to tell you what it says. You've got to do this. I know Brightonians, this is like water to a cat. But it's absolutely essential. We've got to swallow our pride and say, God, you've given me gifts, gifts of leaders. It's a grace gift. It doesn't mean these leaders are perfect. It certainly doesn't. A leader in a church might, might you know, hear, say, oh, but Jesus says I'm a gift. I've tried that on my wife. doesn't work. Right? <laughs> Well, just good to see you. I just want to remind you that I'm God's gift to this household. It doesn't work. It's not meant to draw attention to the perfection of the leader. You read the rest of Paul, you know that. So Paul's very happy to say two things at once. He can say, listen, please, just the things you see in my life, follow them. Imitate my life. The second thing he says is, <laughs> well, it gets worse as the letters go on. He says, in, he says in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that I'm the least of the apostles. And a bit later in his life, he writes Ephesians where he says, I'm the least of all God's people. <laughs> At the very end of his life, he gets to 1 Timothy, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. <laughs> so this is, this is a leader who is, the closer he gets to Jesus, the more he realizes it's not about me. I'm not the guy. It's, not, it's, not, it's about Jesus, not about me. But at the same time, he can say, but, but, things you've seen in me, I want you to follow them. I want you to follow my example. I don't want you to just read my letters and do what I say. I want you to watch me. Watch me. If Christianity can't be watched in someone's life, it's just another fake philosophy. You can tweak that. It's serious. So a man called D.A. Carson, who's not a friend, but a, a, someone I admire, he writes excellent books. He, he said that when he was at college, he, he was leading some friends to Christ in his room. And there was a man there who was a Christian, a bit long, longer than him. And there was a guy there who wasn't a Christian and said to him, how do I know Christianity's true? How do I know Christianity's real? It, it sounds plausible, but you know, I've, seen, I've seen good people, and they're not Christians. So why should I follow your Christianity? And the guy said, watch me watch me. He said, what do you mean watch you? He said, do whatever you like. If you want to move into my house, you can. You just watch me. For the next few months, just watch my life. See, see if you see something different. So he did. He did. And he became a Christian. Because the guy was confident the grace of God's at work in my life. Not, it's not that I'm perfect. I'm just leaning hard on Jesus. I'm trusting Jesus. And it shows in my life.
People say, oh, right, that's how you live. So following in the church is, 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 is actually not, it's not an option. You need to find people in the church. And, and let me just give you three very quick ways. We've only got a tiny bit of time, but it's worth doing these before we finish. First of all, get close. Get close. That's a, that seems to be in the language here. Paul talks in family terms, doesn't he? talks about Timothy, his dear son. You are my children. You, you don't have many fathers, but I became your father. This is not corporation language. It's family language. It's deep bond. What does that mean? Friends, it means this. Hear me? If you want to follow Jesus, join the church in your heart. Join it as a family. Join it as you join a family. With all the troubles, all the, all the awkwardness of a family, all the, all the little tiffs and con conflicts, it's okay. It's still a family. Join it as a family and enjoy the wonder of that as well. But getting close. I know family is, a, is a, for some of us, a bit of a schmaltzy metaphor. Are we all a lovely family? I, I, sometimes Christians turn it into that. It sounds a little bit floral and it's lovely to be in a nice family. It doesn't turn us on necessarily. But you, you watch The Godfather. Okay, that will cure you of that instantly. How do they talk about family? Right? You touch my family, I kill you. That's how they talk about it. There's a sense of pride. and but No, we're a family. We, we love our family. We, we're committed to our family. We don't, you get my point. We're passionate about loving one another and, and serving one another and committed to each other. This is the atmosphere of the, the New Testament. Again, the atmosphere of this passage I just read to you. So when we talk about small group life, for us to think, well, I, I like to come and watch on a Sunday. It's not going to work. It's not what I read here. My children, my father, my son, my beloved. That's, that's not, that's, that's not going to happen if we just come and watch. So please join, get close, get close. Secondly, watch. Do what I said about Carson. Watch. Watch life. And by the way, that means watch the outcome. It says in Hebrews 13, verse 7, watch the outcome of their way of life. Watch the outcome. That, so if you're worried that I mean we should all be clones, you should all be scruffy, and you should all have beards, and everyone in this church, including the women, needs to look exactly like the, the, the elders, and we should all have a, clone each other's lives down to the nth degree, and that's, that's proper discipleship. And I'm being half serious because sometimes that happens. Christians get so into, I've got to follow, I've got to, and you, it can often come out of deep insecurities. We're not watching the outcome of their life and following them. We're just watching every detail of their life in a, in a sort of a strange legalistic way. No, no, watch their life. Watch it wisely. There's some things about our elders you don't want to follow, frankly. I know what's on their iPods. Really weird music, stuff like that. You think, no, oh, no, like some, of them, some of them support Arsenal. It's just really strange. <laughs> so stuff that you don't, you just are not having that. But, but watch the outcome of their life. Watch the way they are with their family. Watch the way they are with their money. Watch the way they are with their time. Watch the way they are with their tongues, their words. Watch where they go. And not just the elders. I mean, it's, it's, this isn't about just, it wouldn't work if it was just elders. That's why Paul says, it's not just me. I sent you Timothy. There's leaders all across, men and women in the church, who you need to watch. Some of you, it's time to start watching. Watching carefully. Who am I learning from? I guarantee you are following people. You just need to choose who. you just, you just got to choose who. You can't not follow. Third and final thing is follow. See, we, we, we will even say, oh, I, I don't follow anyone. 
I, I, I won't, you know, that's a Brightonian, certainly a Brightonian sentiment. I don't follow anybody, thanks very much. I'm free from that. I don't follow anybody. Can you not see that just by saying that you are following? You're following the culture of the age. I don't follow anybody except the, the culture that tells me not to follow anybody. It doesn't work. It's like wearing a T-shirt that says, I'm, this is not a T-shirt. It doesn't work. You, you, friends, listen. Please hear me. You are following someone. You are. And some of you are following totally the wrong people. And it's disastrous. It will lead you to everlasting death in some cases. It's that serious. Don't, don't be stupid about this. Choose who you follow very carefully. Jesus came into us saying, follow me. Follow me. And how do we do it? Well, partly, partly by following the people he gives us. Are you doing that? Can I trust him? Can I follow Jesus? I don't want to follow Jesus. I don't want to follow anyone, really. Do I have to follow him? What's he going to do to me? What's he going to do to me? What's Jesus going to do to you? What's he done for you? Is there anyone that's ever lived who is more worthy of your trust? Is there anyone who's ever lived who you can more gladly follow? (laughs) Of course, of course not. There's no one that's ever lived who you could be so peaceful about following as the Lord Jesus Christ. You can trust him. Follow him. All, all of your attempts to avoid that, where have they led you? Has that done you good? Is it? How's that going? Ignoring Jesus. Is that really working out for you? It's not, is it? Be honest with yourself. It isn't. He's the one who died for you. He's the one who's for you. He's never going to let you down. He's never going to forsake you. He's, he's never going to uh, uh, lead you into something he shouldn't have. He's never going to ever have to say, I'm so sorry. I do. That's why we follow Christ first and lead us second. I tell you, some of you are not even following Christ. And you must, you must. He's the only one that can lead you out of your sin, your shame, your guilt, and the death that you're walking into. You must follow him. You must follow him. Let's pray. Perhaps we could shut our eyes and get ready to respond to him. Father, we we thank you again for this saviour who came into the world saying, I am the way. I am the way. Follow me. And we pray in Jesus' name you teach us and train us to do just that. Not just in our commitment to you, but in our commitment to your church. In Jesus' name. Amen.